you're listening to Atlanta Film Crew, a podcast about this girl's journey into the insane world of filmmaking. Each week, I'll be bringing you inspiring conversations with various crew members from all departments that I've met along the way. We discuss all topics. Nothing is off limits. This podcast is for everyone, from currently working crew to the people wondering how they can join us. Welcome back, you guys, and thank you for listening. Today on the podcast, Layla and I chat with my very talented friend who has also been extremely patient with me when I call to ask my camera on lens questions. So thank you for that. He's changed the way that I look at reality TV, and that man is DP and director of MTV's Siesta Key, Gareth Paul Cox. You guys, he has an amazing journey. I I really could have listened to his stories forever. He has worked his way through being a grip, K-grip, electrician, gaffer, camera operator, director, producer, and editor. His list of credits include, as we just mentioned, Siesta Key, Funky, Our Mother the Mountain, Hard Knocks, Out of the Wild, and many, many more. He is also an AFI alumni. He's worked on short films, features, reality TV, documentaries, and commercials. You do not want to miss this one. So without further ado, here is our chat with DP and director Gareth Paul Cox. Enjoy, you guys. I'm Gareth, by the way. I don't know. Oh, yeah. This is Layla. Layla. Layla's co-hosting with me today. I'm so sorry. I'm so No, you're good. (laughs) (laughs) I've been like so, like, she got here and I was not very nice to her. She's like trying to help me. And I'm like, I can't figure this out. I'm trying to, I don't think it's going to work. She's like, you can face. don't get your shit together. I'm going to (laughs) leave. Okay. She's like, like, you can FaceTime him on the computer and then use the audio from your phone. And I was like, I don't know what you're saying. I was like, and then we we did this and she's like, this is like kind of what I was talking about. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm an asshole. I just don't, you know, (laughs) I'm like half awake too, because I worked on a music video yesterday and I didn't get home till four in the morning. So it was. That's gnarly. I know. Well, that sounds like a music video though. Yeah. That sounds about right. That's par for the course. That was my first time on a music video in uh, as crew instead of being like a dancer in front of the camera. So it was, yeah, it was different. The guys were really cool, though. They were really nice. And um, But, yeah, we were there very late. We were supposed to be at 12 p.m. to 12 a.m. call time, and I think we were there at all. Not too late. I mean, 2.30. They, like, wrapped it up pretty quickly. But I am. that was my first time back at work for this yeah. whole quarantine. So like putting combos on my shoulders and track and like I have bruises all on my shoulders around my neck. It hurts so bad. My feet hurt just I from bet. like standing. It's yeah. insane. Okay. That's so not- it's, it, <laughs> I can't like, I'm in so much pain right now. I woke up and I was like, Oh my God, I can't get out of this bed. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're definitely doing better than I, cause I'm in pain and I'm not even working. Oh, dude. at this point, I'm like, yeah. I, just, I just left the physical therapist. Yeah. No, that's it's, where I need no to go. No joke. That's what, yeah, from all the camera operating, my shoulders all jacked up. Yeah, oh, my, yeah. not from uh, operating, but my neck is eight different kinds of messed up. Yeah, I'm oh, like, go to you. That sucks. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I wonder, I'm like, I'm about to be 33. I'm like, uh, do I have many years of gripping left in me? Like, <laughs> Probably not. Not at that well, age. Yeah. I literally yeah. like my hips you take hurt. It easy. I know. I'm like, oh, I, ne- 
because I'm so like, I don't ask for, I'll just carry stuff, you know, like, I'm not going to be like, Oh, can you help me carry this? Especially being like a girl. So, um, and I can carry all the stuff, but you know, sometimes it'd probably be better if two people carried it. I don't need to take all that weight, but I will sometimes just to be like, I can do it too. You know? <laughs> yeah. Stupid. When I was gripping a lot. Exactly. Yeah. I used to always ask for help when I was gripping a lot. Yeah. When we're rigging, it's, <laughs> it's a lot. It's, um, the, a lot of the guys like won't let you know they'll be like well, we're all gonna carry this trust together you know and it's like okay cool but yeah, yeah. i was gonna say because i was looking at your at your resume earlier which I, i've never even i've never looked at it until earlier today and i saw a bunch of stuff that you used to grip on you used to yeah grip. And so that's so cool. So, so let's, yeah. we're going to go like back to the very beginning. We'll go, we'll circle back okay. to you gripping because I do want to get to that. But, um, were you, you weren't born in California. You were born in Florida, right? I was born in England. Oh, you were born Nottingham. in England? Yeah. Oh, Nottingham, England. and then what, what age did you move to the States? Um, I moved to the States when I was between... It, it's a little bit, I, so my family and I moved to Spain when I was about four and a half. <laughs> yeah. So we were living in the UK and we moved to Spain probably at four and a half. And, uh, ultimately we lived there for about a year. So I was probably about five and a half, almost six when we came to America and we moved to Orlando, Florida of all places. Oh, but. <laughs> I hate Orlando. <laughs> that yeah. is so cool. Yeah. From Spain. Yeah. I know. What, yeah. what, what, why, um, what did they do for work? Like why, <laughs> what was the, what was the transition there? And then they moved to the States. Why, why did they do all that? Well, ultimately my dad had retired. My parents are a little bit older. They had me when they were in their early forties and uh, my dad was running a large brewery at the time in the UK and was um, either CEO or CFO kind of running something and basically had been doing that for the majority of his professional career and just decided he wanted to get out. So that was what prompted the move to Spain. We had had the house in Spain for a while and basically he just wanted to get out of that industry and retire if you will. So that was part of the plan was go somewhere a little bit warmer because the UK tends to be pretty cold and rainy. And um, our house was in a small town called Javier on the coast, um, uh, just actually by close to Ibiza, if oh, you wow. know where, yeah, all that stuff is. So it's one of those small little um, towns that's like right there that you could take a boat to and from the island if you wanted to. And uh, we moved there, but Ultimately, my parents being my parents, uh, one, they got bored very quickly because it was a small fishing town. And uh, two, they don't speak Spanish. And so (laughs) there was was a little bit of a language barrier. Um, You know, they knew enough to get by, but it it was just not one of those things that they really, I guess, wanted to work at. So ultimately, we ended up moving to the U.S. Another um, one Florida. Yeah. Another warm spot. Exactly. And that, that was one of the reasoning uh, behind the move was ultimately it's another warm spot, but they also speak English. That's so cool. <laughs> so your parents had nothing to do with the film industry or anything like that? No. And still to this day, do not have anything <laughs> to do with it. It's, um, that's been a process for me in, in teaching my parents 
what it is to be in the film industry and working in television um, and film, uh, just in the creative sense. Uh, my dad being a businessman, um, I have a minor in business, um, but my major was in communications. And then ultimately later on after undergrad and many years in New York, I went back to school to study film at the American Film Institute, uh, specifically cinematography. But the process of, of coming out of undergrad and then moving to New York City and then teaching my dad um, that I could make a living doing it yeah. was, was uh, a few years in the making and, yeah. and was very much... But that was actually ultimately, I think, one of the driving forces as to why I wanted to do well. It was almost, you know, I have to prove to my dad uh, that that I can make a living doing it and not just live off of uh, their income for the rest of my life. Yeah, because it is it's kind of uh, unbelievable to parents when when you explain like how it works, because even even being in front of the camera, you know, your parents know like, Oh, like that's never going to happen. You're never going to be able to make a living. But then like trying to explain behind the camera, it starts out the same. Like you're like, Oh, well I don't really have a job. And they're like, well, why do you have to move there to do it? And it's like, how are you going to move there if you don't have a job? And it's like, well, I'm going to try to get a job. It's like, well, I wouldn't move there till you get the job. And it's like, well, I can't get the job from here. You know, right? (laughs) it's like very confusing that they just don't understand it. Like it's, Yes. Yeah, it's not it's not traditional in any sense of the word. No. And sure. and so when you were you in were you at the end of high school or or something when you decided that you wanted to do film or did you know at a after younger age? Grad school, right? I mean after your bachelor degree. You went back. Well, actually um yeah, so the the the, the learning and wanting to be in TV, which was actually, that would have been in middle school. So kind of learning and wanting to get into it was in middle school. Um, I was an eighth grader and my school had like a TV production class um, or actually just morning announcements. I don't even know if it was a formal (laughs) class, but it was, it was something that you would show up an hour before school started and they would do the morning announcements and it was a pre-recorded thing. Um, And they shot, they shot it in the library and I had a class my first period was down by the library and I would typically see them in the studio um, because if you went to return books or something like that, they would have the door open as they were playing it. And I think it was on VHS at that time (laughs) that they would just literally, one of the kids would press play on a VHS player and you would see it come on all the TVs on the closed circuit. And ultimately that kind of spurred it. But unfortunately at that point, it was already too late. I couldn't join. So freshman year of high school, I joined and was able to get into the first year of TV production classes. And from that point on, it just kind of transitioned into, I was a big skate rat and surf rat in, in high school. So um, I used to make skate videos and surf videos of my friends and I. And so all through four years of high school, I did TV production, but I was also on the side um, going out on the weekends to Cocoa Beach and surfing with my friends and making videos or skateboarding with them. And ultimately, between um, sophomore and junior year, we moved out to the beach so that I could continue doing that, but on a much larger scale, if awesome. you will. Cause I was, yeah, I definitely wanted to... I, I had ambitions to be a pro skater or surfer. Right. And, hey, uh, <laughs> anything can happen. It's 2020. I had ambitions in high school. If, if I went to high school with you, I would have definitely tried to date you because I had ambitions of dating one. 
that yeah. probably would not have hung out with y'all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. all the it's a lot of aspirations. I take it back. I, I did the morning announcements <laughs> in high school too. We we probably would have hung out. I know. Yeah, we probably would have. Yeah. I yeah. did a radio T V class. Oh, Oh, no, no. I did a radio and TV class and it's like the same thing. Can I be part of the conversation? I'm cool, too. I did the radio and TV in high school that was like three hours of the day that you got to go do that. And this was again before school. So, so, so like I all of that stuff obviously doesn't apply now because everything is so different. So it was like ultimately useless. But it was something that like piqued my interest in high school, too. I feel like that's when we all like decide kind of like what we're eventually going to do is like in high school, we have this like little seed that's planted at some point or, you know, when we're younger. Oh no, not me. Not you. I, I feel like that. Okay. Go on. So, yeah. so you went to film school. Yeah. Is that where we're uh, heading? Well, without making it too long winded, ultimately, um, I had ambitions to be a pro skater and surfer. Oh, yeah. And then a, a few of my friends, a few of my friends actually did become pros. Oh, that's so um, cool. And so what happened was I just wasn't good enough to make the cut, of course. So ultimately, I sh- I shot a lot of the video spots or basically clips of them right. doing this trick, that trick, whatever it may be, and was not selling it, but was sending it to their sponsors. And I think just after a long time of doing that, I ended up going to um, the community college for a semester because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I, You know, I know... I had an affinity for TV production and I knew how to work a camera, but I didn't really know if that was like a career that I was going to pursue. My dad wanted me to get the business degree. And so I went to community college while I waited to, I applied to a different college a little bit later and waited to get basically um, the letter back or the acceptance letter or something like that. So I got into two different schools and uh, one of them was in St. Augustine, Florida, which is not far from where I have a house now um, in Jacksonville. But that school didn't have a film program. And it had communications with a broadcasting track, a journalism track, and a PR track are the three for communications. And then it had the business administration side. So I went for communications broadcasting and uh, the business minor but it was through that program that I think it really kind of honed in on more the film side of stuff. And I always, um, with the professors, was able to work with them to kind of create independent studies as I got into the junior and senior year. And one of those studies was like um, basically a short film on 16 millimeter film. And that's something that I had to direct, produce, shoot. And at the time, I thought I wanted to be more of a director. Um, but what happened was through that process, I started to work with the camera more. Um, I had also been, um, commercial photography assisting in Orlando and doing a little bit of, um, grip and electric work, uh, for Valencia, uh, which is a school in Orlando that's more like a technical side of the film school, Mm -hmm. uh, or of the film industry, I should say. And, it was through a lot of that stuff that I, I met some cinematographers that were shooting stuff at Valencia. And I started to realize I had more of the affinity for the camera, the technical side and how that related to the creative side and being that liaison between the two. And the directing kind of like 
fell by the wayside. But um, ultimately, that's kind of what I did in undergrad. Upon graduation from undergrad, I actually applied to AFI. And I applied <laughs> and was declined. Uh, <laughs> so um, that was just one of those other elements, you know, how we were talking about my dad. Yeah. Uh, that was a driving force. So ultimately, uh, it was that that also pushed me because basically the letter that I got back said, you just don't have enough experience. Like, we like what you're doing. We like your eye. Um, you know, and also back then, my stuff was not great. It was pretty, <laughs> let's just be honest, it was probably pretty <laughs> shitty. <laughs> like, it wasn't, I, I, you know, if I were to look at it now or had to screen it somewhere, I would probably be extremely embarrassed by it. <laughs> Uh, because it was just, yeah, it was experimental. I'll put it that way. <laughs> it was just abstract, I think. So ultimately, um, that kind of led me to a decision to move to New York and to start, uh, one, pursuing fashion photography, uh, which was also something I was really drawn to. I loved uh, the imagery of Helmut Newton. Um, of a lot of the other uh, bigger fashion photographers that were working at this time, um, Andy Leibovitz being one of them. Uh, she's more portraiture, but, you know, same vein, like Vogue catalog stuff, a lot of that kind of stuff. So um, that was one of the reasons that prompted me to go to New York over Los Angeles. Um, you know, David um, LaChapelle was one of them. Um, so... It was kind of that, and then I knew that maybe I would be able to get my foot in the door in the film industry in New York. Um, but it turns out that didn't happen really the way that I thought it was going to. Uh, yeah, so so basically that's what – I know we we're kind of talking about education, but the two are kind of tied together yeah, with how yeah. I got started no, completely. In, in this industry as well. So, um, But from there – How long were you in New York for? That was almost four years. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, ultimately. So is a, is a, it seemed long at the time, but now compared to how long I've been in Los Angeles, it, that is a very short little blip right. on, on, the, on you, the radar. You were probably like, oh, man, you know, you probably set like, I know people do this. They set like a timer on themselves. Like, oh, man, if I don't meet somebody or get something within a year and it's like a year is nothing. Like I blink and a year goes by. So I'm sure you were probably like. I imagine you were become discouraged after four years and like nothing is fully taken off yet. Well, yeah, I, I, it, it actually, it's funny because what, what New York taught me is one, um, you know, I, I feel like it's good to live in a big city like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be New York, but for me, it was really like, it was the grind. It was the day in, day out, having to figure out how to survive. Um, Hustling might not be the right word, but it was that daily hustle of like trying to produce work, um, trying to get into different things. And what it really taught me is that in order to survive, I ended up having to do a ton of different stuff. Um, so I was actually doing a lot of, um, and this also goes back a little bit to the action sports world, but uh, if we go back, before I went to New York, I ended up, because of that surf skate background, I was actually able to get a job working for Fuel TV which was the Action Sports Network, yeah, uh, based in Los Angeles, owned by Fox. And at the time, which would have been 2007 through 2011, was basically the time period, the block of time I actually shot some of their shows and worked for them and did a lot of segments and stuff. Um, they kind of had like 
the predator, producer, editor, shooter element um, kind of built into their field crews. And so I basically was that. I was producing little segments. I was shooting them. I was editing them. Um, I would work through everything with them, obviously everything going back to LA, but um, it was like these little two to three minute segments that would go on the daily habit um, or the weekly update. And those were just two different shows that needed all these little clips of like things going on around the country, around the world in skate, surf, motocross, snowboard, all that kind of stuff. So um, so they I would just, just call you and be like, oh, we need a, a, you know, some something with a skateboarder. And then you would just go shoot and produce that and then send it back to them. Okay. Yeah, basically, like they would they would get the leads on a lot of the stories we would follow um, or we were open to pitching stuff. So so actually, um, my now ex-wife, but wife at the time uh, was started producing for them. And so we made up a little team and we started to pitch them different show ideas, and different story ideas, uh, which is how we got some of the bigger things with them, which I'll get to probably later. But yeah. um, ultimately, before I left Florida, I had just gotten my foot in the door with them. And that was all thanks to a friend of mine um, named Matt Katsoulis, um, who basically had a TV show, one episode of a TV show uh, with them and brought me on to shoot part of it. Um, so I owe a lot to him for that, nice. but he kind of, basically we produced this little thing and it was more, <laughs> this word's funny to say, but cinematic than what they normally see. We had like a jib, we had, um, I think at the time it was just a jib and then like a really makeshift, They there was this dolly system that was basically aluminum track that would unfold and you would like <laughs> bolt it together. <laughs> it wasn't even a quick system, but it, you would bolt it together and then it was this weird triangulated um, pedestal, basically, with a couple of skate wheels on it. And you would throw that on the track and you would put your tripod legs in it. And that was your, your basically your dolly slash slider at the time. Yeah. But the cool thing was it was so light, you could travel everywhere in the world with it. And you could buy additional track. I think I only had like 12 feet. But basically, we, put, we set that up. And it had a low mode, too, where you could basically have it in like hi-hat mode. Yeah. Um, they had just put like a tie down for your, your fluid head on it and you could just ratchet it right in there and basically start shooting low mode. Um, which was very awkward of course, cause it's like a full size 32 inch wide track and you're basically trying to walk and stumble over it as you're in a low mode going right. like 12 feet. But, um, yeah, it worked. Anywho, I digress. Um, that, that's something that had started right before I moved to New York. So when I got to New York, uh, I asked them for a lot of editorial work. And so I just started editing a lot of segments while I was searching for other work. And they were actually pretty cool with that. They would send me stuff, you know, FedEx overnight. And I would just, this was still mini DV tapes, by the way. So I would digitize everything. And then in Final Cut Pro, cut together, uh, usually typically with three to five revisions on an edit, uh, whatever they needed and then send it out within like three days, basically, for one of those shows. Okay, so while you were in New York, you were um, trying trying to be a cinematographer, you were um, editing, and then what other kinds of odd jobs in film did you have to do to stay afloat? Yeah, I, I was also PAing. I started PAing. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a job as a PA on this film 
called uh, Mother Mother and Child, I believe. Um, <laughs> I might actually have to look that up, but um, <laughs> hold on, let's see. So I want to say that one wrong. Yeah, it was called Mother and Child, and it actually I think had Naomi Watts in it. Nice. Yeah. Um, let's see who did it have in it. Yeah, it has Naomi Watts. Samuel L. Jackson was in it, and basically we were there um, shooting a scene because I think at the time Naomi Watts was actually pregnant and in the movie she's supposed to be pregnant. So we went to uh, like a brownstone on the Lower East Side and it was like one of my first introductions to ever working really in New York. This was like shortly after I moved there and I was PAing, super small crew. I think it was just the director, the cinematographer. He had a small lighting kit with him. Um, I want to say it was a Red One camera package um, supplied by Aerie at the time, which was in Manhattan at the, as well. And basically, I remember I pick up the camera package in a past van uh, or in a cargo van and drove it down to the Lower East Side. And then I was like shuffling cars around, moving everything, basically <laughs> going to get coffee. Yeah. And I think I was the only PA as well. Oh, so wow. It was like a me lot. running around trying to figure out everything. And that was like my introduction to New York, basically, which was trying to figure out where everything is. Nice. Where am yeah. I supposed to go to yeah. get this coffee? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Trying to which, ask people on the street and they're like, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. While trying to make sure our vans don't get tickets or, or uh, <laughs> I think we did have a lighting and grip van. If I remember correctly, for some reason, I feel like we had two vans and one was actually like a box truck. Maybe one was a pass fan for, for actual people, and then the other was a box truck. But I was the only PA, and they were, the box truck, of course, had to be street parked because you can't park it in one of the parking structures. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just, Hell yeah, no. that was an interesting. <laughs> that, was, that was fun. I could never be a fun. PA in New York. I could, not, it was, I could not drive around there. Well, the thing is, the, the cool thing is, is it, it really – I wouldn't. I would not want to do it now. Of course, <laughs> now having the experience that I have, but uh, at the time I was just so hungry. Yeah, and, no, I, I get that. I yeah. did the same thing, but I could not. Not in New York. I could not drive. <laughs> well, it hardens you. That's for sure. My, my first show, they had me driving like it was a reality show, and I had the box truck that had like the lighting, the oh, camera God. equipment. I was whipping oh, it all over Savannah I'd be through terrified. parking decks. It was. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know what you had to do. Yeah. I could not do that in New yeah. York. <laughs> I've seen how people drive there. They don't yeah. like, they make their own lanes. Oh, yeah. Props to you. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so that was one of the things. Um, it, it wasn't shortly thereafter that I think I ended up getting in with a few photo assistants in the fashion industry. And so that's the biggest in, I think, for photography and fashion photography is um, meeting the assistants that are working with the fashion photographers. Typically, they have two or three staff assistants. And like, um, I was lucky enough to to have a mutual friend with a, a guy named uh, Chad Riley, who is one of the main uh, assistants for Annie Leibovitz. And uh, this was probably, I want to say, probably about six months after moving to New York. I, I remember I met up with Chad at a, a restaurant or cafe, probably in the village, because that's where Annie's, uh, one of Annie's brownstones is in the village. And 
we got lunch and basically he was a snowboarder, former snowboarder, and we just connected on the action sports stuff. And so it's like, oh, I'm doing this stuff for fuel and, and all this other stuff. And I can't remember if he was pro-am, pro, or just a, a hobbyist. But um, ultimately, we kind of bonded over that and became friends uh, just through that one lunch meeting. And basically, he was able to bring me out on one of the Vogue shoots pretty early on. And I started working with them for a little, a short period of time and just got my foot in the door with a couple other uh, fashion photographers as well and started doing that a lot. So that was one of the main kind of grinds, if you will. I started just assisting, which actually helped me with a lot of the lighting stuff yeah. because, you know, we used strobes. We were using Profoto banks, DynaLite banks, all that kind of stuff. And what was cool is like you still use a light meter, but basically you're using it with strobes. So you just are doing it to a tenth of a degree. Um, so a tenth of a stop, I should say. So basically you're just getting it super dialed in. And I remember we would do like edge lights. We would have all our soft boxes set up. We would have the hot lights for actually just modeling the light. Um, but if we were outdoors, it was all through the light meter. Um, so that actually was one of the things that taught me a lot. So I was doing that simultaneously while still doing that fuel TV editing and occasionally shooting events for them. Um, there was, you know, the, the, the nice thing about living in a city like that is there's always something going on. Yeah. And so you end up doing like literally no, no two days are the same and you end up going from one thing to the next to the next to the next. So if you get in with the right people, you can really just be starting to do all these different things, which yeah. gives you kind of a Rolodex. Um, you become a Swiss army knife of, of production and random resources I yeah guess. and it's like a domino yeah. effect like one person or one job can lead to the next and to the next and and just making a point on like the fact that you guys bonded over something you know sometimes when you meet people too and that you you're trying to get in you don't want to like force it. it has to kind of happen organically otherwise you become just an egg <laughs> right so that's really cool that right. he had that like snowboarding like you know, extreme sports like thing in common with you that you guys bonded on. And I'm sure that helped a lot too. Yeah. I think that element of my past and my childhood has actually opened up a lot of doors. Um, just being in that sports world or the action sports world. Um, because it has actually helped out like many years on and we can get into this too. But when I was working for NFL films uh, years ago, we ended up, we were doing a documentary on, um, this gentleman named Bubba Stewart, uh, who is one of the um, premier, and I'm not sure if he's still writing right now, but he was basically one of the best, um, I want to say 125cc motocross riders in the world who just happened to be black. And so we were following his story. Um, and so a lot of that, that from my past when I used to shoot motocross and stuff for Fuel TV, actually all of that stuff was usable as a resource to just kind of pull in. And immediately with that director, I was able to connect with him. And then um, obviously with Bubba as well and talking about through his story, it was like, Oh, I understood what he's actually doing. And then we also tied in this like actual lifestyle doc element to it. And um, so it wasn't just all the action sports stuff. That's cool because what you do now 
relates to what your like fun thing was that you used to do as a child in some way. Yeah. Like it's yeah. parallel kind of that's yeah. The, the that's, passions have merged. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you, from New York, you decided to go to LA. Yeah. So the New York thing kind of came to an abrupt end because <laughs> well, one, I got into the American film Institute, but the reason that happened. So that was your second was, time applying for the American film. My, second yeah, time's second the charm. Time. <laughs> second time's the charm. Indeed. That, that will hopefully be the truth with my marriages as well. Because <laughs> 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 I don't want to do that more than twice. So the next one's going to be the one that sticks, I think. Uh, just we'll, tell her. we'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just tell her, this is it for me. <laughs> no pressure, but here's where we're at. Um, <laughs> if we get married, you're in it for the long run. Yeah, yeah. We're when you're signing together. on that that dotted line this is a this is a life contract <laughs> let us know how that goes yeah. i will i will yeah i kind of want to go to the wedding i've never i've never been to the wedding yeah. <laughs> i've never been to any weddings like for friends or anything seriously <laughs> yeah. oh really yeah. wow yeah i'm interested to see what that's like i need to get more friends okay. nicole <laughs> first of all growing up in california a lot of people don't get married until they're older so all of my friends still have to get married <laughs> Yeah. Well, that that's actually probably the best way to do it. I did it a little bit backwards, I think. I was 21. Wow, you were young. Yeah, we were high school. choked on that water. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta give someone a warning. 21? Damn. 21. Was your first drink at the wedding? uh, Actually, you know what's funny? She was 20. So she couldn't even drink. Stop it. Because we got married at the Fountain of Youth in St. Augustine. And uh, it's a state park. It's a state park, so you're not allowed to have, um, well, you couldn't do the underage drinking. I think we slipped or something at some point, but <laughs> it was like, probably the champagne is all she drank that night, you know? Oh, so. my God. I can't even imagine, like, thinking back to me being 21 and who I was dating if I married that person. <laughs> yeah. I was I mean, well, single. I, I was in Colorado. <laughs> you're still single. I know, but <laughs> I was living it up. 21 in Colorado. Ooh, baby. That's awesome. Was weed yeah, legal there? Th- yeah, weed was legal, but I wasn't like... <laughs> She's a baby. <laughs> I was a raft guide. I wasn't... I was just on the river yeah. with alcohol oh, and awesome. weed. But uh, only alcohol. I'm, I'm envious. Yeah, that sounds ideal. I was in Florida. I and Florida. Yeah. Oh, well, it's not for everyone. Yeah, I, this, I like this, it. Nav- I went to yeah. Navarre Beach recently. I don't know if you guys have ever been there. No. It's the only redeeming no. quality of Florida. Oh, my gosh. If you guys ever go, I know this spot that this guy off Instagram showed me. <laughs> Crazy story. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt, but it's a really good... Actually, we should loop back to this. It is such a good story. All right. I'll write it down. We're Please looping write it down. back I would, so I would love to hear to that story. Florida. Yeah. Like, I don't want to interrupt wherever you were because I've already forgotten. Yeah, we, just, we already interrupted. But, <laughs> do you want me to go? I'll go. No, no. no I wrote it. We'll loop around back Perfect. to it. Yep. Circle it. You can. You can, I mean, I, I you remember I where we kid. left off? No one. Remembers. Well, yeah, I was, I was talking a little bit about um, how I transitioned from yeah. New York to LA. Okay. Right. So, you go. Um, yeah. Do you want me to continue or you want to go? You go, you go, you go. You you go. go. Okay. We'll, we'll it's a really back. good story. We'll save it. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, we're, I can't. We're on the edge of I our seat. I can't wait to hear. Well, I might be it, talking it, it up too much. Well, does it end in like uh, a news article that says Florida man and then something else after that? <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, like if I like, never mind. No, but 
No. This guy is so attractive. If you like Google, like, it doesn't matter. He'll pop up. <laughs> Go tell your story. <laughs> tell your story. So I was in Florida for um, an old, I play rugby. And so one of my teammates says it was her birthday. So a few of us got together and went to her friend's or her girlfriend's parents' house. Mm-hmm. And they invited me. And I was like, I hate Florida, but I'll, I'll, I'll come. So anyway, so we drove down to Florida and it was way better than Orlando. So I'll give it that. We were near Destin, I think. Um, yeah. And we were walking, um, like we got there at like midnight Friday and everyone kind of woke up early Saturday and we walked 15 minutes to this disc golf course. Have you guys ever played disc golf? No, I have. It's awesome. It's really fun. However, this call, this like course in Florida, like is full of like swamps. Like you throw it, and like <laughs> and if your disc like goes in, like ninety five percent chance you're fucked. And there's like big, like there was a snake. I saw a snake. I saw a snake. It wasn't poisonous though, but it was like red, terrifying. I lost a disc. Um, but let's uh, just like, can we be proud that it was only one though? Yeah, that's um, pretty good. Thank you. I don't want to brag, but what's up with the secret spot? I'm getting okay. It's okay, a story. <laughs> so, uh, we were walking back from the disc golf course, and I saw this white van that had all these hiking stickers. And I'm a really big hiker, and like some of these stickers are like specific to places, like you can only get them in person. Um, so I was like, "Oh, look at that!" And I pointed it out, and then this like mountain of a man walks out from around the corner, um, and we started talking about his stickers on his van. And I was looking at him, and I was like, "Holy shit!" I know you. I follow you on Instagram. You're so-and-so. And he goes, yeah, I am. So hot. Kind of a douchebag. So hot. So anyway, that was it. I fangirled for like five seconds, like awkwardly walked away and sent him a message. Like what a small world, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what I said. And then um, he responded and then I invited him to disc golf the next day. Right. So with me and my friend. So the next day we all wake up. I take that back. I was the only one that woke up because there was drinking involved the night before. So like <laughs> I was the only one that woke up. I met him. We played disc golf. This is not important. It was just so much fun. Um, and then he invited us to this, to Navarre, to Navarre beach. And, um, he's like, I know this spot that isn't as popular. And I was like, that sounds right up my alley. So I convinced my friends to drive it was like 30 minutes from where we were. And we drive there it was like really bad directions. It was like, there's a sign here, go straight. And at the end of the road, like there was no like actual like GPS coordinates. So we get there and we meet him and we walk like half a mile down Navarre and, or down the beach. And we have like this whole sandbar that goes like completely like all the way out. It was awesome. And him and I were walking down this. And this is why I think my life should be a movie. Cause we were talking and a motherfucking dolphin swims right through us. I was like, like literally like right through us. I was like, what? if only you weren't so full of yourself. Anyway, I'm really proud of that story. There it is. That's it. He was so attractive. And you could have maybe changed him. I no, no. Like some of the stuff he said, I was looking like, um yeah you know there were like there's there was a moment like i could have taken advantage of the situation and i i didn't i'm very proud of myself because gross well done thank you showing restraint showing Showing i I am but so if you guys are ever in florida go to navarre and i'll give you these directions okay and maybe a dolphin or a shark like he's always in florida he's in florida a lot yeah Yeah, you should definitely go to navarre 
I thought you were going to have an alligator story as yeah. well in there. Yeah. But- <laughs> it was just like a snake. I was like, last time I went to yeah. Florida, I saw alligators yeah. everywhere. There's probably some where those discs, like the discs golf discs, whatever, yeah. probably float down to them. I don't know. Ugh. I don't listen. I don't fuck with alligators. <laughs> yeah, don't. There, There's one behind my house. I live on the water and there's actually a small one that comes right by my dock quite often. Have and you named obviously, it? No, not yet. I haven't seen it in a few weeks. Don't so I don't know attached. if it moved on. But do you have a, do you have a dog or anything yeah. like that you have to worry about? Okay, no, but good. my neighbors have a couple corgis, and oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrified. I'm I'm waiting for the day. <laughs> they're also they're that you attend show, a dog funeral. <laughs> they're yeah, they're show corgis too. So they're like. They're oh. prim and proper. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, but they they have a pretty legit sense down by the water. So they're 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 covered. This is not their first radio. But uh, yeah, that's that's quite an incredible Florida story. Thank you so much. Like I don't get enough credit yeah. for my stories. I'm very proud of that one. You're a great storyteller. I like I cut it down that's, a bit. There's yeah. <laughs> That's probably what I should do, actually, to tell you the truth. Um, no, we love your yeah, story. No. So, yeah, so you, so you moved to L.A. Yeah, from New York. Yeah. Um, as an aside, though, we also have a lot of dolphins here. Uh, but have they ever, a, like, oh, swam through you, you while, like, you're standing next to someone very attractive? But No, they, they just swim, they swim up to my jet ski quite a bit. <gasps> but no, no, they don't. And the little baby ones come by. Oh, They're so cute. But do no, you like not, your jet ski? I do actually. Oh, I yeah. rode one for the first time in <gasps> Florida. It was on my bucket list. I probably peed on it. I was terrified. Oh my it was, god! It was terrible. <laughs> I ride one everywhere I go that has water. I've never seen it before. So my fun. friend's parents had one, and she took me out, and I was like, "It was oh, it was so scary." I might just come visit you just because you have one. I don't. We don't I, even well, have to talk. Let's welcome. just go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. we, if we drive right. it like 10, 20 miles. Oh, no. If I like I'm to go in fast. Control, if I'm in control. Oh, I love to go That's fast. It. They're so yeah. fun. They're, they're a lot of fun. Nope. Yeah, they're yeah, so they much are. fun. Oh, That's man. cool that you have one. Those are the things. Every time I go somewhere on vacation, I surf, I horseback ride on the beach, and I run to jet ski. <laughs> Where do you go horseback riding? Dude, Everywhere. I went in Costa Rica. We went riding on the beach. Every time we go somewhere and there is horseback riding, I will book a little private because I don't want to go. I don't want to go on the trail like butt to butt behind like a five year old kid and his mom and dad. Like, no, thanks. I always book a private because I'm like, I want to gallop like we're galloping, dude. And usually they're pretty cool with that because I have experience, you know, like I used to show jump horses. So it's like not fun for me to just like go on a walking trail with a nag of a horse. Like I literally (laughs) will Google on TripAdvisor. And if the people's comments are like, these horses are are wild they're untamed they're crazy i'm like that's the one i want to go on (laughs) they say like you know oh the horses were really slow and not responsive i'm like no i'll skip that one it's my kind of horse (laughs) yeah that sounds ideal for me as well so fun oh god it's so fun have you been horseback riding i have um but uh, yes in in a few places i think i did it in nicaragua on the beach Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, when I was there, one of those years. But I used to go um, in Selmar in California a lot. There, uh, I think it was called like Mount Mountain Verde or Verde Mountain or something. And it's um, it's like up in Selmar, and it was like twenty five bucks for like an hour. And the dudes take you out, and they literally just if you want to like go ahead, you can go way ahead. Um, there's like logs, and I could like jump the logs and um 
I guess I shouldn't, I don't know. They're probably never going to listen, but you know, they used to, they used to let me ride. No, (laughs) they knew that I had a lot of experience. And so they didn't want to give me like the nag horses. And so they would let me ride this lady's horse there. (laughs) She would lease out (laughs) because her horse was like a baby and kind of green. And so it was like fun to ride and like train. It was, Oh God, I loved it. But yeah, it was so dirt cheap. And I would go there like every week with my $25 and I'd be like, your horseback ride. <laughs> That's cool. So fun. That's yeah. They would cool. always extend it. You could go for like, even though you signed up for like 40 minutes or whatever, they would let you go for like an hour, an hour and a half. It was really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. That's very cool. I okay. think I also did it in Pennsylvania as well. At um, There's a skateboarding and gymnast camp called Woodward. Yeah, I and used I, to, I, we used to go, I, when I was a gymnast, that was a camp that we would get like flyers for. And some of my girls from the team, we would go to the Woodward camp and I was oh, always yeah. excited because there was a skateboarding part and there was like dudes there that skated. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was one of those dudes then. Oh, so we just missed each other. Oh my God. <laughs> that's probably it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I went two years in a row to Woodward. I rode a horse on a mountain in Colorado, but not like voluntarily. It was... <laughs> not by choice and then i got left like the group when i was a raft guide we also did horsebacking tours like i didn't do them but the company did yeah and we had some like company meeting i don't know what it was and it was at the top of a mountain that i never was at because i was always in the water <clears throat> and they they brought horses for like the people there and then we had to ride them down when they were done and everyone left and it was just me and this bitch, like this girl who, I don't know who she was. It was me and her and her horse like bucked her off. And I was like, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> I've been bucked off a horse I, before. Yeah. Painful. But like, I don't like yeah. do horse. Like I was just, I was like, all right. Yeah. I took it so slow. We, I should have just gotten off and walked it. It was terrifying. <laughs> you could have just. That sounds really scary. Yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, it was, it was fun. <laughs> it made a cool story. A better story. Yeah. Okay, we, we yeah. totally went. Yeah, let's loop it back. Let's <laughs> Sorry. Rain it in. Yeah. So, enough about well horses. AF, you went to AFI. <laughs> you got in there. This time they were like, oh, you're you're a cool guy now. We like your stuff and you're doing stuff. Is that what the letter said back? <laughs> <laughs> I, or or it, they were like, we feel bad for you. That effect. <laughs> this There's is something just- to that effect. So, uh, one thing that I had, I had done since undergrad as well is... Um, I got very fortunate, a former professor of mine at Flagler College, which is where I did my undergrad, uh, named Jim Gilmore, actually was directing a documentary that was a short form documentary at the time when I signed on to it um, that became a feature. And it was about uh, a guy that had grown up inside the penitentiary system in South Florida, uh, having been an accessory to murder. And that film, once we got into it, ended up becoming it had reenactments so it had like this narrative kind of side to it if you will um in which we had to basically recreate the crime uh it happened in the everglades uh with just uh teenagers and two cars basically it was a carjacking uh gone wrong in which somebody got shot and uh that film put me into this world of documentary filmmaking shortly after that, uh, before moving to New York, I also did a a documentary called day of light, um, with a band member from dispatch named Brad Corrigan. Uh, my buddy, Matt Kessel at the time was also on it. Um, were you camera uh, operating or were you DPing? So one of the cinematographers basically is what kind of what it was. It was more, it, it, it really was, it, it was an event, uh, film. So we went down to, Nicaragua, Managua, and 
uh, each cinematographer, we brought a bunch of cinematographers. There were probably like five of us. Uh, another one was named Russell Brownlee, who at the time we were all kind of in the same world. Um, we all had our cameras, our little HVX 200s, and we went out into a trash dump in Managua, Nicaragua, and were shooting with the community, any kind of outreach that anyone was doing, but also capturing like the daily struggle of these people that work inside the trash dump and live inside the trash dump as well. Um, And so I guess we were all left to our own devices to help create parts of the story. And then it culminated in a, um, a concert for the community members uh, that was put on by Brad and his team of, of uh, fellow musicians. And a lot of um, college kids at the time that had also come down to help with things like healthcare and other needs of the community. Um, long story short, Brad was able to Brad and and some of the um, organizations that he works with uh, were able to get the dump privatized, and so it actually ended up becoming um, a place where people make money and don't have to be subjected to as much uh, toxic toxic materials and and other elements that would harm them. Um, But long story short, those documentaries helped me when I got to New York uh, because it it transitioned me into a little bit of branded content, Um, the early stages of branded content, but also some industrial films and educational documentaries and films. Um, I got in with a production company in Brooklyn uh, that I was basically the DP of a whole bunch of educational films that were made for the Museum of Modern Art. Um, that company and myself helped start with their team, of course, um, their online educational division with video content, uh, basically. So it's like all these classes, which you can still take. And I think MoMA opens them up. They're free now. Oh, wow. What that's I heard. really cool. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And I, it's all still a lot of the stuff that I shot, which is kind of blows my mind. That was about 10 years ago or over 10 years ago. Um, So I was doing a lot of that stuff and that's actually what prompted the reason I bring this up is getting back to AFI is what prompted me to apply to film school. Um, I I love a lot of that stuff and I I love documentaries and I love, um, you know, working with people and cameras and all of those elements, but the industrial and, the educational stuff was not necessarily what I originally wanted to do. And I kind of, basically I woke up one day and realized that it's like, here I am. I was a little bit complacent with where I was. And I just knew that I didn't want to continue doing this, this type of content for the rest of my life. Um, so on a whim, uh, my, ex-wife had found that AFI had extended their deadline for applications that year. And lucky. uh, Yeah. And I had just applied to um, art center college of design in Pasadena and had gotten into that school. Um, But I didn't think AFI was a real, uh, a real um, opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Possibility. I appreciate that. (laughs) Possibility. Um, so ultimately what happened was I sent this, basically the similar package materials that I had sent to the art center. Um, and I got a letter back like a week later or two weeks later. I don't know how long, what the time period was, but it was like, we'd like to interview you, which blew my mind. 
So basically, I, I was so busy at the time, I couldn't even interview in person. So I had to do a Skype interview. And I remember I was so nervous, but I lit it. I like put a bounce light up and like, and this was on like a 27 inch iMac. So we're not, and this was back in the day too. I think it was just probably the highest resolution was 1920 by 1080 on that particular camera, if not 720 possibly for, for that camera. Um, so I lit it and tried to make myself look good. Um, but basically that was on a Friday and then I interviewed and it was with Stephen Lighthill and, and Robert Prime, Bob Prime. And I remember I was just like, I don't remember even what I was talking about, but I was just so excited and, <laughs> and really just told him like what I had been doing. And, um, you know, on Monday I got an email that said, you've been accepted. Congratulations. So it was kind of a real quick thing. And two months later we were living in LA. Yeah. So that's why I say it was like a very quick thing. It was a sudden ending to our chapter in New York. Um, and so we had to kind of give up all those jobs and, and all the relationships I had had at the time. And that's when we uprooted our lives and transitioned into living in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very hard school to get into too. And, um, and also I think a lot of film people probably experience that as well, where you kind of take whatever you can get in the beginning and then you're making money doing that. And then there's the fight with like being stuck doing that. Or do you jump ship and try something new to go where you want to go? Yeah. And what, what had happened was when I was in New York, I was also doing a lot of um, like, you, you know, when I said branded stuff, it, it, I got in with a company. Well, I got in with McCann Erickson doing some stuff, um, which is a big ad agency in, in New York, but also worldwide. But, um, you know, we were doing like Verizon campaign stuff and I was doing a lot of the back end research elements of it, which were still like well produced, well budgeted videos, but it was all about where we would take the brand or where they would take the brand. And ultimately we were just flying a lot of the, um, market research elements for that, uh, for the presentations that would sell the ads and the, basically what the creative was going to be, um, which was cool because I got to see it from that side. Um, so now I know when, when working with ad agencies, like, you know, probably what's gone into the, the elements that are building this creative. So at least I can work with the creatives and understand from their perspective what we're trying to accomplish, um, yeah. especially when it comes to just the story and selling of a product. Um, but I was also doing a lot of videos that were like, I got to go to Sundance two years in a row. Um, and that was with Microsoft, actually. And we went. And basically, Microsoft at the time was the sponsor, and Bing, Bing, the search engine was the sponsor as well. And we were doing all these Bing branded um, pieces, and I was getting to work with some of the biggest names in at Sundance at the time, uh, which was like Ben Affleck would come by. We had um, uh, uh, Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> I don't know why I was buying <laughs> on that. So Ryan Seacrest, which obviously not as popular of a name right now, but um, at the time we were working with a lot of different people. Um, Susan Sarandon was one of them. Um, Olivia Munn was our host for that. And it was basically uh, like woman on the street. We go around, we talk to these celebrities, we talk to whoever's got films at Sundance and we talk about the creative process. We talk about all these things and how can you find it or the information on it. And it's on Bing. 
of course. Oh, yeah. So that was part of the branding of it. Um, and we were cutting these. We had an editor working full time. So without going too far into it, um, I was starting to see some of what the opportunities could be if I were to get into narrative structured filmmaking as opposed to doing what I was doing. So it was like I was so close, but I also was not the person that was making the films that were at Sundance at the time. And I couldn't right. see how I would be able to transition without potentially going back to school to do that. Because yeah. a lot of the people I was meeting in New York, that's what they did. And they were very good at it. And I, I still am friends with a lot of them. And I, I love them all to death. But I knew that I could see myself 10 years from then and potentially be doing a similar thing because some of the people I was meeting were doing that. You know, it's more videography than it was cinematography. Right. Um, yeah, because that's what I think about when I think of like document, like do any kind of documentaries that they seem so close yet so far from narrative and, and all that stuff. It's a, It seems like two separate worlds, but you know what I mean? I don't yeah. feel like those kinds of things and, and, and same with like, did you feel the same way with like reality to, I mean, I might be jumping ahead, but um, do you think documentaries and reality are in the same like world and then there's narrative and things over in another world or do you feel like they kind of cross blend? Am I making sense? Am I? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I understand. I think those worlds are merging now. Yeah. I think that's what's happening because of the evolution and the introduction of things like Netflix and those documentaries is like, we're starting to see uh, a visual language that comes from narrative structured filmmaking and, and, you know, scripted shows and things like that, that now is being able because of the technology to be fully integrated, it integrated integrated <laughs> integrated there we go integrated um it's hard because with these earbuds on which are my um ones from when i used to do a lot of nfl film stuff i can't hear myself as well oh yeah so yeah because these are full isolation for like stage stuff right. they're in ears but um integrated yeah uh, we're starting to see a lot of the same tools used so it's like, you know, an Amira is now what I go out in the field with if I'm doing a running gun documentary, which is basically a cinema camera. Yeah. You know, so it's like that bleed over for the cinematic, the visual style of it is very much the same. And so you can achieve a lot of the same stuff if you keep in mind a few rules that you create for the, your visual aesthetic. Yeah, because I remember not being very interested in watching any documentaries at all. And now that's like one of the number one things I like to watch when I'm looking for something to watch. Yeah. It's, it's more so like now in documentaries, I think what's happening is we're seeing the filmmaker that can really understand what it is to have a visual language in a film. And they're using narrative films as references for documentaries. And what's happening is then you start to inherently just integrate all of that knowledge and all of those visual elements into how you photograph a documentary. So you can be very intentional with it, even if your subject matter is uh, somewhat unpredictable. And, you know, without jumping too far ahead with that show, the MTV show that I originally shot the pilot for, created the visual look for, um, called Siesta Key, and now still shoot and now direct on, um, that is the way we've been able to integrate a cinematic 
if you will, I, I say that with air quotes, cinematic style, um, because we do have an unpredictable cast. You know, a lot of stuff's happening very quickly, but with a few rules and a lot of people helping us to achieve that natural cinematic look, that visual style, um, we're, it's like playing chess now with our cast. It's, it's very much, we have to anticipate what their moves are going to be, but we typically will always try to be a little bit ahead of them um, and not make moves too quickly, though. So it's like we do take pause when something starts happening, and there are primary cameras that basically will get the content while the other cameras go into a movement. So we always identify before we shoot um, an event or a scene, if you will, again, air quotes, for a scene in reality TV, but, um, you know, whatever we're doing, we are very intentional with it. So it's like, you know, the A camera is going to hold regardless of what happens. They're going to hold it in a medium wide while the other B camera, C camera, D camera start to reposition to have the fallout and all these other elements. And then it's a leapfrog effect. And so, you know, we have the advantage where we have multiple cameras as well, but, um, and it's also just, just working with each operator to help them understand what light is doing in a particular moment so that they can just also make a a choice on what angle they're going to shoot based on where the natural light or the augmented or the completely um, uh, fake, if you will, light is placed like our film lights, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to circle back to Siesta Key because it's, we, we definitely, you know, I just got to give you my love on that because you know I watch oh, I that show and it. I love it. So we definitely will go back to that for sure. Um, Thank you. And then how, so jumping back to film school. Yeah, the transition. Yep. You, you then went and you were, and how long were you at AFI? So it's a two-year program, and but there is a little bit of a latency effect in some regard because you don't necessarily finish until your thesis is turned in. Uh, that's when you get your diploma. And for some people, that's almost two and a half, three years, depending on when you shoot your thesis in your second year, uh, just because of the editorial process, the screening process, and uh, the deliverables process, because <laughs> AFI is basically a miniature studio. Yeah. Uh, you do have to meet a deliverables list, uh, which includes all the legal paperwork elements, uh, finalized budget, the, uh, all those elements, and then the final deliverables, which are the posters, the DVDs, whatever else they want. So um, basically two years. It took me two and a half years. Yeah. And then when you got out of the school, how did you, what, what happened next? Did you get a job right out of school or... No, <laughs> no, no, no. Take me through that. Take me through what happened after school. <laughs> yeah, AFI is funny. You know, I I really loved it. Um, it changed who I was and am. Um, it, I went in married and I came out divorced. I'll put it that way. So. <laughs> I'm sure it. I'm sure it took up a lot of time too, right? It took up seven days a week almost yeah. uh yeah i think you get one month off in the summer and then your your semester starts again for your second year yeah i can um, imagine that would be trying on a on a marriage yeah it, it wasn't only that um ultimately 
not to go into the marriage too much, but that was a mutual decision to break it off. Yeah. Uh, we saw that each other was going in opposite directions and wanted different things for their lives. So um, we, we decided that it would be best if we separated at the time. But um, anywho, uh, post-graduation, one of the things that happens a lot with AFI is you end up crewing for each other. Yeah, so you um, learn so, everybody's job. Yeah, so as people start to get jobs and be producers and start to create other content that's not AFI related, um, we really did help port. And it is a little bit segmented into groups. There are certain groups that would help. Um, I always tried to jump around. So I did end up working with a lot of the cinematographers I went to school with um, for a few years. Uh, we ended up doing things like I would first AC for somebody or I would grip for somebody else, or I would do electric, um, either lamp operating or I would be the gaffer or I would be the key grip. Um, or a, like I said, the first AC sometimes operating, um, a friend of mine, uh, I was able to bring in, uh, named Boyd Hobbs on some projects as well. Um, Edward Salerno, I was able to bring in. And then I would always try to refer people as we started building to new jobs. Um, but I think for me, what I ended up doing was I had a couple gigs that were crew related. And then slowly I was able to put the feelers back out for some of the people I've worked with in New York. And I got a job that was basically shooting a web series on an island in Fiji. And I was able to go do that. Um, so that nice. gave me a little That's bit of nice, content. Nice job. It was pretty, yeah, pretty sweet gig. I think it was two weeks in Fiji. It did not suck. I will say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we were down there, traveled a little bit after that. And then another thing I was able to do was um, a friend of mine and former professor of mine at, at AFI uh, named Tal Lazar gave me the opportunity to go with him to shoot a movie in Vietnam. And uh, so we went to Vietnam and he had been shooting movies in Vietnam for a while. And he brought me basically to kind of oversee and help his camera team, uh, which was consistent of two cameras and then respectively an operator for each camera and two ACs for each camera. Um, just oversee and kind of manage them because uh, a lot of times on the Vietnamese films, what he was experiencing was his camera team um, would struggle to maintain, I don't know if focus is the right word, but basically focus, you know? So there would be times when they would be a little bit unsure of what he was asking for. Local. Or they was, were local. Oh yes. The okay, entire, yeah. so, so Tal, Tal and I were the only two people, um, on that film that came from the U S did yeah. he pay for you to go out there? Ooh. Wait, hold on. We lost connection or we can't hear you. Oh, oh there we oh, go. There you go. So yeah, did he pay for you to come out there? So actually what ended up happening was he was able to uh, get the production to hire me. And basically I came as like, at the time of leaving the U.S., I was basically the lead first. And I first was going to oversee first AC. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I went and I started and I was pulling focus on the A camera. Uh, as well as just making sure the B camera always had what they needed. We were sharing lens sets. Um, all the equipment was kind of, some of it said Claremont camera on it. Some of it said other things on it. Wasn't quite sure where it came from. It definitely wasn't rented from Claremont. So 
you know, it, basically had probably been purchased through some kind of market trade at some point and now was in Vietnam. Um, so a lot of our camera package was kind of a hodgepodge of equipment that didn't necessarily all match up. A camera looked completely different than B camera, oh. um, even though they were both, I think, red epic, I want to say at the time. Um, but all the accessories were different. Everything, basically everything was different. Um, I went a few weeks early. I was only supposed to be two days early, but in, in typical kind of um, style for that production, I learned later, uh, we had two weeks of prep after, after I got there. Uh, so we were delayed two weeks. And during that time period, I learned quite a bit of Vietnamese. But I also mapped all of the lenses and did things like that where we knew exactly how far focus marks were off because they hadn't been well-maintained. Um, so it was a lot of those elements leading into production so that when we hit the ground, we could really run through it quite smoothly. Um, but ultimately, what ended up happening was I got the opportunity to kind of move into um, the second unit DP position. And started shooting as we went through the production, which also got extended by, I think, three or four weeks <laughs> as we went. Was that your first um, time DPing? Uh, that, no, that would not have been my first time because I had done this job in Fiji, Fiji um, which I was you a DP. Um, what did you do in Fiji? Was uh, it the, she was in the bathroom. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Um, that was a, basically a web series um, that was that was on sustainability uh, because there's an island in Fiji off the coast uh, called Turtle Island, which is a private island. It's a resort, um, but it's also almost 100, 100% self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. So we went down there to do an environmental piece, uh, in which a bunch of people came down. That's it's cool. a web series slash documentary series that followed people on the island as they explored what it meant to be almost 100% self-sustaining. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think the only reason they didn't meet that criteria was because they had diesel generators that they needed in case of storm yeah. or something like that. But almost all the other energy came from solar. Uh, they had a huge solar farm on the island. But um, the Vietnamese film was a, a Vietnamese comedy uh, with an entire Vietnamese crew, Vietnamese director, producers, um, and my friend Tal, who took me over there. Um, but no, the the... I had been shooting, of course, also through AFI, um, mm-hmm. and then I had done a bunch of branded content as well when I came out of AFI that was a lot of DP stuff um, and kind of creating the looks for like mini web series stuff, if mm-hmm. you will, um, that was more like branded content. Uh, that's what I got into and made a living doing mostly post AFI for a, a, about two years, I think, until I got in with NFL Films. And then NFL films kind of pushed me into more of the sports documentary world, uh, getting back into doc stuff and DPing that. So, um, but that Vietnamese film was interesting because, uh, you know, not speaking the language and then also not culturally, I hadn't really ever traveled in that part of Asia before, especially not Southeast Asia. Um, I had been Japan when I was living in New York and worked there for a little bit, but, um, it was just a totally different experience. It was, it was like, uh, so surreal because, um, I'd never expected to get to do a lot of some of the second unit photography. And what ended up happening was we just got so far behind, we needed to start shooting two units. 
Um, and so we did it. It wasn't that often, but there were times where it'd be like, okay, the main unit is actually going to split off from what we're doing right now. So I would end up doing some of the stunt sequence stuff, um, which was exciting for me because it was like, oh, I get to do all the fun stuff. You know, you always hear about the second unit DPs kind of getting all the explosions and the cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's my yeah, favorite so, unit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and sometimes, I, you know, the, the director would actually stay with us in the second unit because we would actually have the first unit cast with us for part of the stunt. Mm-hmm. And we would be shooting that while my friend would go and pre-light and set up for the next scene and kind of do basically just jump ahead with the first unit and start getting a lot of that stuff set up, um, which was typically in the area that we were near vicinity, but it wasn't always the case. Sometimes we would be on opposite sides of the city um, mm-hmm. doing, doing our thing. Um, but that was, that was a lot of fun and, and definitely one of the things that I started with, I guess, post AFI. And what, um, so when you're, camera operating versus DPing how much because I'm just curious to know how much input do you have or do you just kind of take command from whatever the DP wants to do or do you have any like pull with being like I think you know this shot would be cool or is it just yeah um I got the opportunity to operate for Yasus Laskis AFC uh, a few years post AFI I actually had Oh, you know, one of the funny things I just thought of is um, right after AFI, that, that first year post-AFI, I actually ended up uh, being an assistant teacher at AFI. So, so that was one of the other ways I started to make money was I actually had to go back and start teaching at AFI, uh, <laughs> which was very surreal having just graduated from AFI. But um, basically, I was helping uh, Tal Lazar and Yasik Laskis uh, AFC with their classes. And, and so that actually gave me a lot of the ability to kind of like pick their brain. And so Yasek, years, I think a year or so later and after I had come back from Vietnam, had actually hired me to be a camera operator on one of his movies um, called Shot, that shot in Los Angeles, uh, non-union, smaller film, but shot for six or eight weeks. And the relationship, to answer your question, with, with Yasek was very much of a collaboration. Um, and I think this is the best way as a DP that I also try to run with my camera operators uh, when I'm not operating myself, is that I really do look for their input and their eyes to be the first ones to pick and see the issues. And what I did for Yasek and what we had ended up working into this like very smooth workflow was I would work with the art department and all these other department heads and anyone or the set dressers or anyone that was around the camera at the time, the grips and everything to help coordinate a lot of the elements so that he didn't even need to think about it, whether or not it was like that light stand's going to be in the shot or this element's going to be in the shot or do we need to work with that, you know, the window's going to be three stops hotter. And I know Yasek is doing something else, trying to pre-light this other thing. Like I'll call Yasek over and like, we'll just talk about it. Is that your intention for that to be? that blown out or you know where wherever we were clipping our highlights on that but, so it just kind of depends on the job and who your dp is yes yeah. absolutely and I, I would say that's a little bit different also being that i am a dp you know i don't think a, a 
necessarily all operators would would point out lighting things as well because there was one scene where we were i remember we were in a dimly lit bedroom and it was basically i think we were doing day for night and i remember looking in the ip and uh <laughs> I, po- I popped up and I, I think i went on walkie or i called yasik over it might have been calling yasik over and i said hey um you know this is really dark. Like we're clipping a lot of the shadows here. And he's like, yes, I know that's the intent. And I was like, okay, as long as, as long as you're cool with that. And I, I'm not sure necessarily that might, that would probably be in all other respects, probably be overstepping one's position as a camera operator. Um, but because Yasik and I had already had a relationship as, uh, on a professional level. And then, um, also kind of that student teacher kind of situation. Um, it was very comfortable for us to have that dialogue. But I think, you know, a lot of what I was bringing up for that shoot might have been outside of what a traditional operator might do. Um, but that's just because of where I come from as a DP. Right. And yeah. then, so what was, your, how did you get your first DP job? That was through friends, word of mouth. Like what was your first big, like paying DP job? Oh, that would have been the, actually the one that kicked oh, off. Ahead. The one that kicked off where okay, this is all I'm doing now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've had a very. I love to work, and I I work when I can when we're not in a pandemic, which we are right now. But Ugh, yeah. I uh, uh, I know <laughs> it's a drag, um, but it's also opened my eyes to a lot of things and how much of a workaholic I am. Um, between first year and second year at AFI, I was able to shadow Mihai Malamar Jr., who did, um, well, P.T. Anderson's The Master, um, but also a lot of other notable films. Uh, we did this movie in Atlanta called Plus One, and I shadowed him on it, and then ultimately, eventually became an additional second AC on it, uh, assistant camera. And through that uh, experience, I, I guess I started to realize that I could probably transition into shooting earlier than I thought. And I had a company here in Jacksonville, ironically, that I had worked with on documentaries before that had just kind of reached out to me, I guess, around the same time because they, they knew I was working in Atlanta, had, had asked me um, how I felt about shooting commercials, like their structured commercials instead of their branded content or their documentaries. And basically it was in that second year at AFI, I got the opportunity to DP a few commercials, um, regional spots typically. Uh, but I did get one national campaign in that year. And, uh, that was for a chain chicken company called Zaxby's chicken company (laughs) called Zaxby's. Um, which was supposed to be regional, but ended up going national. I have no idea idea why, but it, it ended up being broadcast all over the U.S. for some reason, <laughs> even though they're mostly in the Southeast. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I ended up doing that, and that was actually all motion control. Um, so we brought in a Milo robot and uh, motion control rig. Not really a robot, but... Um, and we did a pre-vis in, in Maya... And it kind of brought me into this world where all of a sudden I saw myself as more of like a technical DP. And from there, I guess that was one of the moments where I realized, oh, 
now I'm starting to do it, you know, yeah. like, oh, this is why I went to AFI. This is the reason I'm doing it is because of all this stuff. And I think it was in that second year at AFI as well is where AFI in the first year deconstructs you. Yeah. Um, to like they build you break, back up. They break you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, a tremendous process and it really does help you once you get out into the real world because this industry is rough. It's, it's not easy to be in this industry, as you both know. Yeah. Um, it's a grind. It's long hours. Um, you're pushed to your limits. It's emotional. And you always have to be professional. It's kind of the world that it is. Um, and it takes a lot of hard work to even get to the point where you're working the long hours. Like there's a lot of pre-work that goes into getting to that point. Right. And yeah, and people will test you and try you on the job at the 14th hour. And you certainly have to be, like you said, professional. Yeah, absolutely. So in the second year you start to develop, um, not only, I mean, a few people were able to do it in their first year, their look, um, their identity as it comes to cinematography, but, um, really who you are and who you might be in this industry, a lot of those elements start to develop. And so it was through both the AFI process, um, you have a 35 millimeter MOS, uh, MOS project that you shoot in your second year of cinematography. And I did two versions. You have like basically three days to do whatever you want with this set amount of film. And I made a short film and then also a spec commercial. Um, and in doing that, it was also more the technical side. I brought in like a 30 foot techno crane and did the commercial. It's a fake Nike commercial, spec Nike commercial. Um, and so I really took an affinity to more the technical side of it. At the same time, I was also in the second year, um, helping David Stump, who was another mentor of mine, uh, and another ASC member, um, with his book, which is called, uh, Digital Cinematography Fundamentals, Tools, Techniques and Workflows, uh, which was published by Focal Press. Do I um, have that book? I actually might, I might have you that might, book. You might. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit, you know, the crazy thing with writing a book on digital cinematography is the technology moves on so quickly yeah. <laughs> that, that literally, you know, six months, eight months, a year after this thing was printed, which I have a copy here with me, but... Um, <laughs> Just to be able to remember that see, title. Can I see I, the cover <laughs> of it? I want to see if I have it. Yeah. Oh, like it's yeah. right there. Oh, yeah. oh, I think that's in my Amazon cart. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. Um, and I was able to. I knew to, I heard of it. A fellow classmate and I, uh, the fellow classmate named Ting, Tim Kang, uh, we were able to help him edit and then also provide a lot of the still images that, that um, uh, show whatever basically the examples of whatever right. he's talking about, whether or not that's chromatic aberrations and all these other elements. Right. Um, what, yeah. So what is the one book, what is the other book? Um, Master shots, that one, do you know the one I'm talking mm-hmm. about? That one yep. drives me nuts. Are the pictures in their color? Because the master shots are all black and white and I cannot see anything. They're like very hard to tell where they're like, Oh, the gun placement. I'm like, there's a gun in the shot. Like I can't even see it. I, I vaguely remember, I think that one is just in black and white print. I don't think it is in color. Yeah. 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 yeah I can't. That doesn't surprise me, though. 
Yeah, I can't see anything in that um, Master Shots book. So it's kind of like whatever the examples they give me. I'm like, what the hell? I don't know what they're talking about. Like, I can't see it. Yeah, that's tough. I know. It's Um, a pain in the ass. Yeah. Unfortunately, this technology moves on so quickly, though. This book, book, which was published in 2014, I think is already extremely outdated. Most of the, the... just in, in reference to like what camera platforms he's talking about. Right. You know, like the C3, it's probably the C300, but it's the Mark one. It's not the Mark three or two, I should say, but it's not the newest iterations of these cameras, you know? Yeah. So. So I have a question for you. When you book a job as a DP, yep. what is the first, what are the first things that you do like technically for to prep yourself and, and carry out your job? Well, um, I guess it depends on the, the oh. job, but a lot of times it's definitely, it's either meeting with the producer or the producer director or just the director, or it's typically just a phone call these days. Um, and a lot of times if it's commercial, I'll get a deck and that's usually coming from either the director or it's coming from the ad agency. And I'll go through the deck. Um, typically, I've already seen it if I've been pitched on the project anyways. And I went through an interview process, depending on what kind of project it is. Um, and we'll kind of, I'll work with the director to kind of break down what it is that they see, how they see it. And then I start exchanging references with the director on what we're trying to accomplish or what we would like to incorporate from certain elements of these films projects into our project so like a like a storyboard of examples yeah basically we'll create a kind of a look treatment if if you will of what we're going to do um so for example i know you have an affinity for siesta key and what we did with (laughs) siesta key um and so i actually when my friend warren skills created the, the show idea five years ago he sent me a deck, uh, which was his vision for the project, all that kind of stuff. So um, ultimately, when I landed in Sarasota, Florida, uh, like a day after he called me to go shoot the pilot, <laughs> which was a very, it was a whirlwind of a production. And I think we shot the pilot in like four days. If you, yeah, if memory yeah. serves me right. It was like four days. It was a 22 minute episode instead of a 44 which is what the show is now. Um, that process was basically like, here's what we want to do. It's in the vein of Laguna Beach in the Hills. Yeah. Um, but we want the cinematography to have aerial stuff that's a little bit different. Um, we want it to be uh, handheld instead of on stick. So there were like these elements that we started incorporating. Um, but basically, he and I just sat down. We sat down with one of the other show creators, um, Gary Kaprosikris, who is actually one of the fathers uh, for one of the cast members or former cast member, I should say, um, named Alex. But um, basically, we all sat down. Actually, it was at a pizza joint while Gary was having a beer. And I think, you know, I had just gotten off a plane and, and we sat down and we were t- chatting through, like, what does this look like? How can we help create it? What Here's what the scenes we want to do. Um, so it's basically we just start breaking everything down. On the features that I've done, uh, typically when I meet with the director, we'll start going through the script 
and we'll start talking about the progression from the beginning to the end. Um, so it's a lot of these different elements um, as I get yeah. further and further into it. So. Yeah, because if, if um, any of you out there haven't watched the show, it's you have a very unique approach to reality TV. It looks totally different than any other reality show I've ever seen, which is what hooked me off the bat. Cause I'm, I'm about to be 33. And I think when it came out, I was like 31 and, um, and I had seen like the trailer for it. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if I should watch this. I'm a little too old for, you know, like I already was part of the Laguna Hills and or Laguna Beach and the Hills generation. So my time has passed for that. But it was so gorgeous. I was like, all right, I'm just going to I'm just going to watch the first episode, you know, like <laughs> I got to know who does this show. It's beautiful. And then I got hooked immediately and started watching it. And then I think it was that same year that it came out. I, that's where I met you was at South by Southwest. You were doing a little panel for Panasonic cause it's shot on Panasonic Vericam. Yep. Okay. The 35 and the LT. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and when I walked in, there was like TVs into the panel at South by, there was like TVs playing Siesta key. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? And I was like, Oh, <laughs> Oh my God. And I was like, I, I feel like I universally like willed meeting you into existence or something. And I was like, I cannot believe this. I think. And then I walked in, you know, and I was looking around and I was like, Oh my God, I'm probably the only one in here who watches this show. <laughs> I think you literally were the only person when I said, who's seen the show. And, and you were the only person that raised your hand. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well maybe not everyone's demographic. You know? This is not everyone's cup of tea. It, yeah. I feel like uh, that room was, was a lot of dudes and like older people. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. But it's, do you, I mean, first of all, I didn't even notice Alex was gone. <laughs> I didn't even notice. I just realized last week because something came up on like YouTube with like Juliet and someone else discussing it. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, he hasn't even been on the show. Oh, okay. I was like, all right. Fine. No, yeah. no loss there for me. Not my favorite, but I, I am obsessed with the show now. Now I can't stop watching it. Do you think too, um, being from Florida helped you? Cause like you already know the setting and how beautiful it is. And, and do you think that helped you at all with, with shooting at all? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, you know, a few other people that should be recognized are Mark Ford and Kevin Lopez uh, with a company named Creature Films uh, that's tied to E1, uh, Entertainment One, uh, the reality division. Um, when we all sat in a room and, oh, Hisham Abed as well, uh, who was one of the first uh, directors on the project um, and with Warren Skills, um, when we all sat in a room in LA and started discussing kind of like, once the show was sold uh, a year after that uh, pilot was shot uh, or a year and a half thereabouts, um, that was really when we decided what that visual language would look like. And uh, some of the elements we were discussing were um, basically like, how can we tie what had already been done, which I guess Mark Ford and, and Kevin Mark was already involved with Laguna Beach and uh, Hisham had directed a lot of the Hills 
Um, it was really to how can we help take that that level of cinematography and elevate it and still capture a lot of these real elements. Um, so it was it was kind of building that visual bible, if you will, uh, for what the show would look like at that time. Um, part of that was what is Florida? How is Florida a character? And oh yeah, that's a good way it, to. Yeah, and and what role does that part of Florida, like Sarasota, Siesta Key specifically, which Beautiful. is the island off of Sarasota, um, when I say Sarasota, that's the main city that Siesta Key is nestled next to. Um, what does that look like? And we knew in the show, it being a reality show, we just needed to not only have the cast, but but set it in a place that, felt as beautiful as the cast is you know we've got a very attractive cast they are gorgeous (laughs) they are gorgeous um but we also a lot of reality shows don't do justice for the environment they're set in uh in my opinion uh not in all cases you know you've got shows that do break outside of that box but um especially a lot of the nat geo reality shows they do obviously a great job with nature and the photography of it but um, for a mainstream show like this MTV show, it was how do we create that? And so we started looking at references, and one of them was Spring Breakers. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and that was a big one. Um, and so that actually creates uh, Florida. It, it it really does put Florida as a character in the movie. Um, you really feel what Florida feels like, and so that was one of the things. And I do, to answer your question, I know that was a very long-winded way of putting it. Um, oh, I good. do think it it helps that I grew up in Florida and, and know Florida so well that I was able to see it not in the traditional way that you necessarily see Florida. We do make it look like a tropical paradise, of course. Yeah. Um, but we also wanted to have some of the elements that you don't necessarily see all the time, which is some of the the better bar photography, if you will, um, in some of these locations, um, kind of like, I guess the way I refer to it a lot, and maybe I said this also at South by Southwest is it's like, you know, it's like a 44 minute long commercial. Um, and so we do kind of approach the photography that way as well, especially when we get to color correction. Um, when I I think of your bar, the bar scenes and stuff, I think of like, purpley blue pink like lighting and lights it's like gorgeous yeah we did want to have um some kind of uh continuity to all of those elements so we do really try to play the color palette in a in a way that doesn't detract from all these like elements of of uh, affinity if you will a lot of complementary color play all that kind of stuff for what we can control there's so many elements we can't control, right. but you know what that we can, we always do. So we use a lot of Titan tubes and things like that. But when we started, we didn't have those, that technology didn't exist or those lights didn't exist at the time. Um, so we were doing a lot with uh, just Joe Lico's. We do a ton of lighting with Joe Lico's because we can just send that light across the room. Yeah. And do you shoot a lot? It, of, basically. Do you shoot a lot of, um, I feel like you said somewhere, it may have been in the panel, that you shoot a lot at Golden Hour. Uh, yeah, we do try to, whenever we can, um, like a lot of our events, uh, cast all cast events, will take place. And 
somewhat strategically, but also this is just naturally how these events kind of happen. It's like they're typically from like 5 p.m. through sunset into night. Like that's a typical like event, right? For like, um, like we did a gala event and that's when the gala was actually taking place. So, you know, we, we always have to be able to transition through that as well. So we're like losing light for a long period of time. We're pulling filters. You know, I always use polarizers. We pull the polarizers last actually, but we'll, we'll be pulling ND, which is all internal. And then we'll pull the polarizers and then we'll switch the cameras to 5,000. Then we'll switch, um, typically we'll switch then color temperature. So it's like, you're constantly chasing these elements, these technical elements. Um, but yes, we do try to photograph a lot of things around magic hour. And because the cast doesn't wake up early, that's always in the latter half of the day. <laughs> yeah. Unless we're talking about Garrett. G-Baby wakes up early <laughs> and, and he's, a, and he's a, at the gym. So. <laughs> yeah, workout fiend. <laughs> yeah. So I have one more question about the Siesta Key world. You sure. also direct, you directed a few episodes, which I actually didn't even know until I was looking at your resume. I didn't realize that you directed some. How did that come about for you? Yeah. Just so a natural I, progression? Yeah, it was an interesting thing. And I'm starting to get more and more into directing now. Uh, both commercially and narratively, uh, which is also an interesting thing. But uh, the real way it came about, and I directed um, the second half of season three. Uh, so 3B, uh, it was 11 episodes meant to be 12, but because of the pandemic, we actually did not get all full 12 episodes. Um, it came about because I had reached a certain point with the cinematography after three seasons where I felt like, some of the things that I was doing, uh, I could also do if I was directing. Um, and so I pitched it as an idea to one of the executive producers, um, also the showrunner uh, um, named Tom Dannon. And Tom, and also Cecily uh, and Warren, uh, who are also EPs on the show. And I kind of, I brought it up to Warren first being my friend, um, of course, but, uh, ultimately when I went to really pitch it, it was to Tom and it was in the sense of like, I think we can kind of meld these two worlds, uh, because a lot of what I do when I'm operating the camera is I'm, I'm trying to help the other camera predict what's going to happen. And so we're mostly doing it just with nonverbal communication, uh, because I'm literally holding a Panasonic Vericam 35. Uh, usually on an easy rig, but at a, w- a lower level, it's on usually at the waist level, um, or under eye level slightly. And I was like, basically said, I think I can do this. I can light it and I can direct it and we can streamline a lot of the elements, at least of one of the crews, um, without needing another person. And a lot of times I would butt heads with some of the directors, yeah. not intentionally, you yeah. know, it was never an intentional thing, but many times I think with these shows, um, there are people that are brought in that haven't been with the show as long as like I have, which has been five years. Right. I was now. just going to say that you have different directors for different episodes. And so they're coming into your world. And so really I, I don't know if this is how it is, but I feel like you should 
they should be molding to your world you guys have already created. Thanks, Layla, for that burp. (laughs) The world that you guys have already created, they should be molding to you rather than you molding to them. Right. And they would come in with great ideas. I'm not knocking them. Um, And they're they're also respectively great directors. Um, And most of them came from reality TV. And I think that was the difference and one of the reasons we would butt heads is now, you know, with my second half of my career thus far post AFI, I really always try to get back to some of the elements from a structured scripted world. And a lot of that just doesn't align with what reality TV has been in the past. And the butting of the heads would come with a lot of that. Um, it was the elements of like, you know, make sure you, a lot of times we would hear just make sure you get it. And it was like, well, well, what, it's easy to get it. We can just point the camera in that direction and we can shoot it. But what are, what, what's the intention? And so we would always have, try to have these conversations. It's like, you know, we know so-and-so is going to go over here potentially, and they're going to talk about this, right? Like, cause we kind of know going in some of the story elements we need, or we've been tracking it long enough that we know what they're going to talk about, right? So they're meeting up with Chloe and Juliet are meeting up to butt heads about something, right? right? About what happened with Alex last night and how Chloe doesn't think that Juliet should still be with Alex. Like, we're going back to the first season here, but ultimately it's like, we know that's going to happen. We know that's what they're talking about. So ultimately, how can we photograph it in a way that uh, tells that story as well? Like, what's some of the tension that's there? How can we say it without literally saying it, which is what we do as well? But um, I think a lot of times it, it was just new directors would come in and be no fault of their own. It was just that they weren't used to that. They weren't used to that conversation or trying to photograph it that way. And the fear was that we might miss something. And of course, that's a real fear that that happens. We do miss stuff. And and you can see it in the show sometimes, like the camera will be pointed the wrong direction and you hear somebody say something off camera and we missed it. Like sometimes there's just no way around it. Um, we have so many resources and sometimes we just can't capture it all uh, in, in our language. And I think that's the struggle. And so sometimes we would butt heads on like, we need to see it. It was basically like the camera has to be on someone that's saying something at all times. And it was like, well, in our world, that's not necessarily the case. Like we have a viewership that understands the way that we work and that audience knows that sometimes we don't capture it and sometimes it is a, a, a piece of dialogue that happens off camera or the fight sometimes get chaotic and sometimes we don't see the punching or all those elements and it's because sometimes the way we film it you might not necessarily get that in your frame at that one moment but you know what we all know what a fight looks like and, <laughs> and, yeah. and as far as the conversation goes there's subtitles I'd rather look at yeah. something beautiful and see the subtitles because I got subtitles on anyway than than necessarily be like staring at their faces when the words are said. Yeah. And, you know, I, I agree with you, but that was hard to sometimes ask of a director that was used to always seeing it or, and, and sometimes we've, we struggled with the network as well as some of the other producers and also the same context. It wasn't until probably about halfway through the second season or the end of the second season. And, and that was probably at least almost, 
28 episodes into the to the show. Now we're at 50 plus, which is 50 plus hours of TV. Um, that that they started to understand that it was okay, like that that it was really it was like retraining or or asking something of of everyone that they just weren't comfortable with yet because they hadn't seen it play out successfully. But now we've seen it, so so I think that was part of that argument was what helped me uh, to get the directing job. Um, and now I direct NDP on it. And then I was able to promote uh, one of my uh, additional photography uh, shooters, Mei Wang, uh, to now being a co-DP with me. So she oversees one crew entirely and I oversee the other crew entirely. That's amazing. That's awesome. And she, she thank you. She, she collaborates with a director, uh, Typically, it's my friend Warren uh, Skeels who directs on the other crew, and I direct DP my crew and work with two operators, sometimes three operators. And she has herself as the DP and then an additional operator or a third operator for her. Nice. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. um, Well, that was, that's really cool. Um, we have a few more, two more questions. Yeah, uh, okay. we, won't, we won't keep you too uh, long. Yeah, as I'm we wrap sorry. this up, yeah. No, I, 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 I was feel soaking like I've all of this. Too long. No, 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 no. This no. has yeah. been awesome. We have all day. We were just we're trying to like, we're trying to soak in everything you're saying. We'll take as much as you'll give yeah. us. Okay. We're trying not to waste too much of your time. <laughs> but we were you wondering. Um, well, two questions. If you could give advice to someone who wants to be a DP, what would you tell them? And then to think about this while you're giving that question, um, what would be like one recommendation as well? So like, what's your advice to someone that wants to become a DP and like your one piece, your one recommendation, it could be anything like a tool or like, yeah, or just something on that or book. Okay. Yeah. She <laughs> yeah. already told you. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like for, as far as the advice, like Layla is utility right now. You know, and like, let's say, I don't know if this is her goal, but like, let's say if she wanted to be a DP one day, like what, you know, what's the one piece of advice that maybe you didn't get that you wish you knew or something like that? That's a good question. Yeah. Now we're hitting Um, you hard. Yeah, I think, well, it depends because there's so many different ways for you to become a DP, right? Um, Yeah. I have no interest. And, Props to you. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I would fully support you if you did, uh, regardless. You know, um, competition is healthy, and also we're all different. <laughs> <laughs> we're all different people, though, too. Yeah, so it's yeah. like you, you bring a different point of view than I bring, and we're not all right for the same job. So right. ultimately, um, you know, that's something that I've had to learn the hard way. Uh, just that's a lot of ego. You, you tend to have to put your ego aside in this mm-hmm. in this profession i think yeah um because if you don't it will get in your way yeah um that's but a great, i think a piece, yeah. great piece of advice yeah. the ego yeah oh, wait was that oh, your okay. advice that, that was, was not that, his that advice oh oh keep that, going that was, keep going it's because a, that's it's a double whammy let's hear it yeah i mean maybe the ego thing is more important though because that's something i've had to come to terms with i think it's I, huge yeah it 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 really is. That wasn't going to be my piece of advice, but I'll, I will go into it a little bit. Yeah. Is that I've made mistakes very early on and throughout my career. And, you know, I'm 34 now. It's it's not like I'm, and I'm also not doing exactly what I went to AFI for, you know? Uh, I never thought that I would be shooting 
uh, an MTV show, uh, unscripted MTV show, uh, at this juncture in my life. And one thing that I've learned and I have to be very humble about is that I have made some decisions and, and done some things and said some things to people, um, that I regret. And I, I didn't think through them at the time and they were professional choices and they seemed, I, I think it was that it wasn't necessarily even my ego at the time. It was more so that I just thought that that's the way that it worked. I, I thought, um, and for example, it, it can be simple stuff. Um, and this is something that I, did, I never thought about, but sometimes I would ask favors of people. And, and I thought that I was in a position where I could ask that favor. Um, uh, nothing bad. No, no, nothing bad we're talking about here. But it, it would be like a favor, for example, um, for a big company that I was working for. It was, can I leave this piece of equipment with you? for you to be able to move out of this facility, you know, so that, and, and the piece of equipment that we're talking about, ultimately, I think I have my mic, the piece of equipment that we're talking about ultimately was my responsibility. Um, but I was not in a position at the time that I could transport that piece of equipment, uh, due to, um, I think a car issue or something like that. So I asked a favor of, of a fellow shooter at the time to be able to move a piece of equipment and that person said, yes, okay, right, and agreed to it. And so I took off, and I didn't think twice about it. But word got back to kind of the HQ, if you will, that I had done that. And and previously, I had asked a favor to have a piece of equipment brought to me uh, when I should have gone and picked it up at a hotel across town in L.A. during rush hour. But still, oh, regardless, yeah. I probably should have gone because I was asking a superior, uh, somebody that had been with the company for a long period of time, uh, to do me a favor and to bring that equipment to me. And I should have just sucked it up and gone on the three hour tour across Los Angeles, right. uh, and, and back to get the piece of equipment so that the next day when we shot, it, it came with me as opposed to with them. Right. Um, and it, it was just small things like that. But at the time, I didn't really think anything of them. Um, but now I would think twice about it. Or I would be really sure that what I'm asking of somebody is understood as a mutual thing and that it is not me asking a favor um, for no real reason. I would make sure I explain why as yeah. opposed to just, you know, I think really doing it that way. And in, those, in both of those cases, it's a hard thing because you can't know the outcome. And I really did think that it wasn't a big deal. But it was a big deal for those people that I asked the favor of. And and we didn't have the rapport right. that we could just do it like that. It wasn't like a really good friend of mine, you know, where it was like, Oh yeah, sure, I'll bring that. Right. It was it was a it was a coworker. And sometimes you, you forget in our industry that, that the people we work with aren't just our you know, they're not always our friends or best friends just because we all work in the film industry. Right. Um and I think that that was a big lesson. And that ultimately bit me in the butt uh, because a few other things occurred uh, with that particular company and, and, you know, I no longer work with them (laughs) ever. And technically uh, those those things that you are supposed to pick up or get are technically like your responsibility and something bad could have happened if somebody else were picking it up and then that would have fallen back on you. 
Yeah. And, and the people I asked were employees of the company and I was a, a permalance position. Uh, so, so, you know, it could also be that they ship it to me and it, it goes missing in during FedEx or something like that. Ultimately that's FedEx responsibility, but, um, yes, it's more so that, that those people have to move their own equipment. And then they were also moving mine as well. And, and that was the bigger issue. It, not necessarily, like you say, that definitely is a, a component, like the responsibility of the gear. But it was also that I was asking them to do double the amount of work. Yeah. And they they weren't, there was no benefit to them to do it, you know, because they do that day in and day out with their own gear. And so I was like, oh, can you do this for me? And then I just seemingly ran off, you know, to like leave or, and stuff. So that was a, uh, yeah, naive on my part. And and so I've had to come to terms with that. But that's a, a very lackadaisical story about ego. But but ego, I think, is a real big thing that, that you have to keep in check, especially as a cinematographer in collaborating with the director or somebody that's put in charge. Um, my first feature I ever did, I, again, I made some silly choices and I, I took control of situations that I should not have taken control of um, just because there was a lack of control, a lack of leadership in terms of the assistant directing position. Um, so I would say, oh, let's prioritize doing this. And the director and I were not on the same page. And, and you know, it then came across as me trying to be an authoritarian or directing position instead of assuming my position, which is supportive of the vision. Yeah. So overstepping yeah. bounds definitely overstepping unfortunately yeah now I, I try to make a conscious effort again with the ego not to do things like that of yeah. course that's good advice yeah, yeah that is because the good ego advice. ego thing is something that like i see a lot on set too and it really it's like tough to watch someone acting out of straight ego you know yeah and i've made that mistake with the sdk many times and yeah. and that was also because of uh, artistic merit I was fearful that my vision was being compromised and I've had to come to terms with over the years that my vision isn't the only vision, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely very collaborative environment. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And then what was your one recommendation? recommendation? So I think the recommendation would be, um, especially when you're first starting out, it's just, uh, to listen as much as possible <laughs> and to watch as much as possible, to always be watching. Uh, not only the department that you're shadowing or whatever it is you're doing, if you're um, you know, just getting into the industry or you've been in it for a while, it's, it's being aware of what's happening around you and not just solely focused on one element of what's happening in front of you. Um, because that will ultimately teach you everything you need to know about set etiquette um, but that structure, and then also, it's it's quite interesting to watch how other things are done, so that you know if you ever need to go back and recreate something. Uh, especially as a DP, I mean, I think that's what I do the majority of time on set. Is not only am I helping to create the vision for the the project and the end goal of the product, but I am watching and collaborating with other departments to make sure certain elements are being put together in a timely manner, but also so that they support that vision and the end goal. Um, 
Bill Dill ASC has this thing where basically he says, you know, ultimately the cinematographer is the gatekeeper to the image. And yeah, it's something that he taught us when we were at AFI. And I always think back to that. It's like, ultimately, if we are the gatekeeper, you know, we're the one that, that sees the product and the project from beginning to end, ideally, uh, if you don't get cut out of the end part, um, <laughs> which ha- seems to be happening and has happened a lot. Um, and it's happened to me as well. But that we can help maintain the original intention. Um, and so Bill was really on to something there. But, you know, you also have to kind of take that as you're collaborating with all the different departments to help make sure that whatever's happening and ends up on screen is what the intention was ultimately. Yeah. Um, because if the art department doesn't see something, uh, it's your job to see it, <laughs> you know, or wardrobe or whatever it might be, you know, you're, you've got to be the one on top of that. So I always like to just watch that, uh, and see what's happening as well behind the camera as much as in front of it. Um, That's especially if we're, if we're talking about interpersonal skills, there's a lot of, um, and I think CSTK has really helped me hone in this skill is, you know, not only is it, do we work with a temperamental cast, um, but we work with a very temperamental crew and, uh, I am part of that temperamental crew, of course, uh, unfortunately and have been in the past, but, um, it's how we all work with each other that gets it made. So, um, you know, if this is all of our jobs, we want it to, to be fun while we're doing it, I think, right? So, yeah. Yeah, just make sure you watch. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. You're very welcome. I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss all of this. Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure, and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so excited. It was awesome meeting you. Yeah, it was awesome meeting you as well. (laughs) Thank you so much. I will talk to you soon, I'm sure. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this conversation was valuable to you. If you guys want to connect, follow the podcast on Instagram at Atlanta Film Crew Podcast, or you can email me with any questions at Atlanta Film Crew Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. It would also mean the world to me if you write a review on Apple Podcasts. Again, if you love the show, you can subscribe, rate, and review. I really appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the people who helped make this podcast possible. So thank you, Rowan O'Halloran, Layla Cohen, Andrew, and Teresa Alden. You guys are amazing.